Listeners, welcome back to the Modern History HSC podcast. I'm here with a big cast. We're back from school holidays. Pretty excited about this if you've been waiting in your downloads for it to come up. Um, and here you go. We're going to be looking at some really full-on, really full-on, really complex topics. But we're really going to try to peel back the surface. So these are all theories. We're going to try to compare economic theories so capitalism democracy communism socialism fascism are they all just buzzwords and then what are the actual practical examples and we know that this can come up in the hsc where they ask you to go what was more important the theory or was it what they actually did and was it about survival or were they doing it for their goal hopefully we can get to that um, I've got Luke, Scott, Sophie, Mark, and Tom here. We're just going to start with a bit of warm-up, just saying how they're going and what they've been doing, just because it's been a bit of a it's been a while. So, Luke, you're going to go first. Make sure you're nice and loud for the microphone. Say hello. What have you been up to? Uh, hello, everyone. Um, in the holidays, done a lot of working and a lot of sleeping, and that was about it. Who you want to hear from next? Uh, hello, um, just being a bit of chill for the holidays, ready to get into some study. Been doing a little bit of work. It's about all. Hello, everyone. Um, well, I'm just trying to, I've been trying to stay motivated, I guess. And yeah, I had a little bit of a break over the holidays, which was good. So now I'm just going to get into it. Get the exams done and then yeah. Mark, how about you? Yeah, it's Mark. Um, holidays was definitely a break, so keen to get back into it and um, yeah, get that HSC done. Yeah, my name's Tom. I'm a bit like Mark. I planned on having, you know, doing a bit of work and there was some study sessions and whatnot in the holidays, but largely it was just a lot of sleeping and a lot of holidaying and stuff. Yeah, and I'm sh- and I'm exactly the same too. Didn't pick up many books or anything like that so this is a good way to get back into it because the core of the whole topic power and authority and are these buzzwords and theories like are they really that different or is it the same thing with a different paint job so we're first going to start off with if we got asked to define capitalism in just like a sentence or a paragraph or what are some of the things that come to mind um, would anybody want to have a crack at that? Um, well, in my opinion, capitalism is just largely about the free market. And while there is like some level of regulation and whatnot, it's all about supply and demand and the fact that what people want and what people need sort of drives the entire economy and people are able to, um, I don't know, take advantage of that and develop their own wealth, I guess, individual wealth. And then that means that then doing things well and whatnot is heavily incentivized for moving up within the set class structure of the capitalist system. Yeah. Yeah. I'd add to that saying capitalism kind of, um, encourages competition within, um, a lot of the businesses and people then is a means of, um, developing a lot of economies around the world. Yeah. 
I'd agree. I'd say that it, um, if I were to define it, I'd put it as a system of, I guess, free market. I think everyone's covered it fairly well, in my opinion. Um, my follow-up is, is okay, so capitalism, it seems to be bolted on well and truly to like, let the free market do what it wants to do. Prices are the signals, and the way that communism and or fascism tries to be different is because people come into the equation and then they go, well, all these little independent indicators of prices, because that's what they are, because prices represent supply and demand. I saw on Prime 7 News the other night that a steak at your local pub is supposed to be about 60 bucks now because of the supply and demand supply chain disruptions. It's representing that there's an issue there. The communists or the fascists or even people in our own government today in Australia, the difference is they come in and they think that they can do it better. They think that the prices are the problems and the prices cause the inequality. Therefore, the way to do it and push it towards some other sort of system is that if only there was, you know, some person setting all the prices, making sure that bread always costs $2, like it should never be above that because that's bad. Even if there's no bread supply, it should always just be $2, no matter what. Um, that'll somehow fix it. So that's probably one of the big glaring issues, uh, not issues, but I guess differences between the two systems. Uh, what are some examples? What are some examples of some capitalist states today? I'm sure you can all name one because there's hundreds. <laughs> no, we can start out with us here in Australia, and. Probably the best example is the United States. What else? What are some other countries that we know are capitalist? United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Yeah, yeah. New Zealand is also a capitalist. <laughs> Mark's been doing like a French sort of thing. Well, yeah, the French are capitalist. <laughs> Shout out to Paul Arn. <laughs> yeah, Paul Arn, are you listening? Um, who else have we got? Pretty much all of Europe. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much the whole world. Yeah, there's a lot of capitalism. Yeah, and we're focusing on the Cold War. That where you said pretty much all of Europe, you're right. So this is what forms our economic blocks for the Cold War. And it becomes about pro-free market and then people in the rest of the world who think that that's a scam and that if there was just somebody in charge, we'd fix it. So really that's a core thing and that's like, one of the theories um what about communism when it comes to i'll throw a curveball in religion do we remember anything about what the communists think about religion uh i remember stalin he was pretty much against a lot of the um christian churches and all that um religious institutions that were in russia and just trying to get rid of them and promote an atheist society but in turn that would also paint him as a godlike figure and would divert a lot of all these religious intent to all these other gods towards him and this one party state do you think that was intentional or i don't know a net benefit to you power wise oh definitely intentionally likes to rule by force and um, more of a look at me, I'm your leader, 
there's no one else above me everyone's below me on the top just the king of russia pretty much yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah well going back to communism yeah it's all about atheism i guess is that what you... yeah yeah so, yeah and just no religion at all and i don't know whether that was intended to do like that was a design intention for like you know giving the power to the um to the one-party state or whatever which is not really a communist ideal or whether stalin just saw this part of communism and used it to his own advantage later on yeah and again in the, if we talk about fascism do we know if if we think back to nazi germany were the nazis against religion as well no uh, i'm pretty sure they were kind of well, initially tied in with the churches and all that and they're looking to favor that and kind of promote like a nazified christian ideal yeah it's definitely a little bit more complicated that one of the resistance resistances to the nazis in their i guess rise was the church um because they didn't like what nazis were doing in terms of um like natural natural selection sort of policies that if somebody was on their deathbed um it's probably more cost effective and better for the state that we just allow this person and we assist them to pass away rather than today when we would think about it it's just like you know the hospital has an obligation to do everything to try to make sure that that person survives the nazis were on pretty shaky ground where it was just like this is more cost effective this is better for the state and also if they're a jew or if they're homosexual or if they're a political agitator this might be an opportunity while they're weak to also knock them off as well and leading figures in the catholic church were pretty vocal that that was immoral well we'll talk about stalin before and how he used sort of the abolishing of the religions to boost his own sort of social standing and make himself sort of a divine figure as well as a state mm. i think in the nazi party as we're talking i think they tried to go about it a little bit differently and instead of trying to get rid of all religion they kind of used the catholic church and stuff they were trying to use it to boost their popularity and stuff even though the figures like the prominent figures weren't really with them they were still sort of there for the ideals and that sort of thing and trying to keep people on board yeah and i would also say with the when the nazis were coming up it was a like the great depression and um there was a period of a lot of change and so i guess adopting like aligning with the church kind of it allowed the people to get on board with the nazis because they're not having to change their faith that they've had for decades and all that and they kind of see an ally in the nazis because they're um sort of they look like the same with the church yeah i think in theory fascism isn't supposed to be like you're supposed to be atheist and not focused on religion but this is another example of where sort of the circumstances and the reality sort of came into play where hitler was trying to maintain power and a lot of the um fascist and nazi ideals like gender roles and that sort of thing were very conservative and so the church was also sort of a conservative part that allowed them to come into power in a way by allowing it to stay so they, they end up pretty much coming out with the same outcome 
because uh, the communists, again, in their theory, if we remove religion, then we remove another thing that makes people different. And that's, remember, that's their goal. It's like, let's have equality. So the fascist ideology, it's let's remove religion because perhaps it's an opposition to everybody being a cog in the machine and focusing on being the best German that they can be. Like they might have something to say against us. And why do you need religion when you can worship the state? Do they pretty much come up with the same practical outcome or like you were saying before, is it a little bit more complicated? Did they come to slightly different arrangements? Was Hitler a god? Was he the new religion? Yeah, in a lot of ways he was. I feel like Stalin ended up in a sort of fascist um, role in that way in terms of the fact that he eliminated religion for the purpose of idolizing himself and the Soviet state. And then with Hitler and the Nazis, they sort of, I don't know, sort of found a middle ground, I guess. I don't know anyone have anything to say about the Nazis. Well, if we're going to talk about sort of that culmination of uh, fascism with communism with Stalin and that wall, um, you got Hitler is a dictator. That's obviously quite a big part of fascism, but Stalin was also a dictator. And is that very communist to have a dictator to lead the whole country, one man deciding what happens and what doesn't? Just a thought. <laughs> what do you do? You guys have any extra thoughts, or does this feeling like a little bit full on? Or no, I sort of agree with Luke because communism is when like the community sort of owns everything. So I agree, like having a dictator in a communist country, I don't really, yeah, no, I'm just backing up what Lou's saying. I yeah. agree. I think they both wanted to be a god of some sort to um, make sure their legacy was passed on. But Hitler was more uh, people-friendly. He believed that um, getting on the people's side was better than um, them not being on their side. But Stalin took that differently. He didn't care about the people. If they opposed him, they um, were eliminated because he thought that uh, no man, no problem. Um, where Hitler was more, be on people's side, people love me and they'll follow me. Where um, Stalin was more enforcing fear. If they fear me, they'll follow me. Yeah. My next question is, do dictatorships have good trade-offs? Because obviously, post-World War One, they're quite popular, okay? And I know they were trying to get away from something else, and they traded a royal family figure for someone from their own stock, like someone from the working class, or because both Stalin and Hitler were, were like working class nobodies who then became emperors, in a sense. Like... Word was it just exactly the same thing, and they've just but they've thrown in somebody from the lower class to do the job. Is it exactly the same thing as the empires before, and is that why the people liked it because it was familiar and it just kind of kept the status quo going? Well, at this time, what Tom said before, it's quite a, a time of lots of change occurring, and I think dictators like. The trade-off, like, were there any good trade-offs having dictators? I think mm. dictators are good for getting things done. So, like, there's no one to go against them, really. So if they 
want to move forward with an idea, it's not like they have to win the votes next year. So they can't, but like they can do things that aren't popular to achieve goals and stuff like that. So I think that's like a more of a positive trailer. Maybe it's not positive for they're trying to aim for something that's negative, but they do get things done instead of worrying about votes and stuff. Yeah, I agree because um, Stalin was, if he had an idea like um, making hospitals better or more accessible and more hotels and housing, he still, he went forward and he did it no matter how bad it was or how many uh, problems there were, he did it. And um, Hitler was kind of the same. He wanted um, he wanted youth youth camps and um, uh, camps to hold the Jews and he wanted them done and he got them done, which um, is probably why they liked the dictators because they got things done um, without censorship from the yeah, well, they say um, dictators, the, a good thing about them is that they removed a lot of the obstacles to um, progress and all the stuff that they want to do because um, having this one person just making the one decisions means that something's going to get done because there's not going to be anyone either opposing it or saying, oh, no, that's wrong, and so they get that done. But saying that... Um, Stalin and Hitler being from like the working class and from the people, I guess uh, that allowed a lot of people to support them because after being ruled by all these elite classes that were just up the top and not really caring about who was below them and they were kind of hoping that these people that were them could represent them and help them kind of get out of this very difficult situation. And so that's why a lot of Europe looked towards dictatorships to provide a lot of stability for them. Yeah, I feel like dictatorships, dictatorships found like a fair amount of common ground between um, representing the people and having that sort of older um, tradition of like a feudalist nation with the emperor or a king or whatever because you now have this person who's in power um, like a king or like an emperor but they came from the common people and they have the sort of same ideas as the common people in many ways. And because they then have the power and they are able to push these ideas without, you know, going through a lot of obstacles, going through a lot of like democratic processes, the people feel like their, their goals are a lot, in a lot of ways coming through. Um, like and it, and it's turning out better for them, I guess. Better representation. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree with Sophie? As yeah. Well? I think that, Dictators come to power in sort of like in a chaotic time, I guess, so that they're able to say things that make the people think, oh, stability is going to be in our future. Like if they're not, yeah, just in the chaotic times, I think, yeah, I'd agree with Tom. Yeah, on the fear of, saying. fear of chaos. Yeah. And the people want something like the yeah, they're desperate. They're desperate. I think it's also a bit easier when you're talking about like the working class person rising to the top and leading, I think it's easier probably for them to actually know what the people want. Like I think they're a bit more in touch with the working class because they've been there and sort of like they'd socialize with those kind of people. And so they'd know sort of what the people want. Like Scott was saying with Stalin giving like healthcare and stuff. The sales probably, like they've probably got the best healthcare they can, like money can buy. So 
the sailors probably wouldn't be very worried about healthcare. Yeah, but when the working class person gets in there, they're sort of more in touch with understanding what the people want and also, as Tom said, the people feel will feel like they're understood. So it's kind of a two-way thing. Why doesn't dictatorship or authoritarianism or these things that we're talking about kick off in the US? They get smashed by the Great Depression as well. I know they're not hit as hard opposed to World War One, but they have huge swathes of America which are in crisis um during that period of time. Like why doesn't it why doesn't it happen? Thinking they I'm thinking they turned a bit more towards religion. Like they got extremely religious about um their future and they're also a bit better educated so they weren't as um as blind to the things that would be going on in the background. So if someone come along and said, I'll get you out of the depression, um, I, I support you guys and I'll, I'll lead you guys, they'll probably be more skeptic because they've got a um, well-educated opinion on it. So a dictator would have to be extremely smart to... Um, really take over an educated country such as America. Yeah, I feel like it might also come down to the fact that America is sort of a, at this time, sort of a newer nation than some of the other ones, and they were sort of founded on democracy and freedom from the United Kingdom and whatnot, and that those sort of ideals were sort of embedded in the American culture and sort of moving towards a one-party state and this authoritarian regime is sort of still very... I don't know, un-American at this time, and maybe given more um, like time, it might border down, and they might they might succumb to some of these things. But they're really the Americans are really focused on um, their their way that they set up when they separated from the United Kingdom. Yeah, I'd say on from what Tom is is also the Constitution. It's probably written in there that they need competition from Republicans and Democrats, and so it's a lot harder to try and get the whole of the United States on board to get rid of this pretty new constitution that they've that's all they've pretty much known and it's it's worked well for them as well um, since it's been in, since it's been written they've kind of been based off of freedom and they're they're responsible for a lot of the Great Depression so they might have been thinking that we've started it we can get um, we can get everyone out of it. So they wanted to be that guiding light, I guess. Yeah, I feel like it is very culture-based. And I think the word Mark used when he said freedom is kind of like the big buzzword with America. Like all they say, basically, America is this free nation. We are uh, fight for freedom. And so I think that that's probably the biggest part is sort of that's why they ended up going against communism and stuff is and fascism, so fascism, and you've got like the dictator ruling everyone, and so that freedom, that's kind of not really in there, so they were very against that. And then you've got communism where the state rules itself kind of thing, and I don't know, it doesn't seem very free because you've got no classes and no, I don't know, the people just sort of work and work and don't do anything else really. So I think freedom and culture are really tied into that part. Yeah, opportunity. And yeah. It's just what I'm trying to say, Luke. With yeah. like when, when everyone's equal, no one has the opportunity to rise into a 
yeah. the promises. Yeah. So that's probably another good question. What are the promises for each of the systems? So we were just talking about America. So what do you get? What's the American dream? What's the promise you get if you are living in a democratic, free market, capitalist society? What do you get promised? A house. And house. If you work hard enough, you can get whatever you want. Yep, that's it. Work hard, get whatever you want. You guys get told that all the time. Work hard enough, you could retire. You know, you could buy a nice car. If you in a in a capital in like a capitalist system like America, where you have this free market and whatnot, if you can use the free market to your advantage, you can get rich without having you know lift a shovel or carry any of the, like do any of this sort of harsh labour. And that's sort of one of the things I think as well. Well, the, that's capitalism accounted for. If we want to talk about communism, sort of what is the communist dream? Mm. You sort of no classes, sort of everyone's equal, everyone gets the same opportunities, everyone is a part of the labour force and sort of that sort of thing. And I think somewhere where communism kind of falls flat sometimes is where you've got the American dream of this, like, if I work hard, I can get to this point where... In communism, it's kind of just like, I've got to work hard for the same as everyone else and sort of in tearing down the class structures, they don't really sort of build everyone up to be rich. They just tear everyone down so everyone's poor and everyone's above the workforce. I think sometimes that's where it falls quite a bit where people just don't really have hope as much. Yeah, they really have to do things for the love of it um, because if you train hard for many years to be a brain surgeon, surgeon in uh, Russia, you get paid the same um, for being a car driver in Moscow. Yeah. So it's really for a lot of things and not many people would have that motivational drive like capitalism does where you get the big bucks if you work hard. Yeah, I'd say capitalism definitely gives you an incentive to do something, but um, going off what we were saying earlier, America is more of like a wealthier nation, so... Um, there's not that much push to go to communism, which kind of allows everyone to be the same because they're all pretty well off in America, whereas Russia's more of a poorer nation. And so this promise of communism and you're not going to starve and lose like 90% of your kids <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to lift them up, whereas a communism would pretty much drag a lot of America down. So that's the kind of polar opposites that brought them about. Yeah, I think with capitalism, it's like, I guess you would say, motivating because you can sort of see where you want to go and you know exactly what you have to do to get there. So, mm. yeah, I think. We've only got, um, let's say, we've only got about two minutes until our recording for our first part is done. So, what we're going to do is wrap up here for uh, part one i think we're really on a roll so we're probably gonna keep going with a part two so interval break and i'll throw an ad in here or something <laughs> righto viewers not off viewers i don't know how you'd be watching us <laughs> that'd be a bit creepy because it's audio only um, we're back for part two. We were discussing what our second topics were going to be. It was either going to be um, 
is China actually communist? Because if you look at a lot of their tendencies today, it looks like they're fascist. But I think what's more relevant to us, especially Australian, and we have a lot of American listeners, is we were just saying that there are all these incentives for capitalism to keep going and for democracy to keep working. And democracy seems to me like it was a relief valve for America and Australia and Britain post-World War One, that they didn't fall into dictatorship because they were already dragging up people from the working class or like that could already happen. But there was also like capitalism was still working. And today, like if you live in Australia or Canada or America and you're the age of all the people here who are going to be talking, I'm lucky I got in, I got a house. Maybe if you're listening, maybe you have a house, that's fine, and you've got a $300,000 mortgage, or if you live in a big city, it's a million-dollar mortgage, and you're strapped with that for life now. Yeah, and that's not the same promise that the people post-World War Two got, which was, Luke, what were you saying before? Oh, well, they could really do whatever they wanted like you come out of world war ii and sort of where everything's lower like if you work hard you can pretty much get whatever you want like or whatever we'd consider that we've wanted you get <laughs> what do you what's that all like you could shear a sheep for a couple of days and then go buy a block of land and build your own little house on it and you'd be set up like for life you wouldn't have to worry about all these bit large debts you wouldn't have to worry about that sort of thing yeah has everything that took worth of any value at this point in the timeline now it's like post the cold war and all the stuff we've talked about stagnated into these large pools whether or not it's like large corporations or two parties which it's only ever going to be labor it's only ever going to be liberal and you're dreaming if you think it's going to be anything else if the status quo keeps going and if you wanted to buy a house, you probably should have started saving up a decade ago for it because that just keeps getting out of reach. Does that break the social contract? And then does Marx's plan back in Germany when he was sitting in a bar somewhere with angles, does it actually come true? Is capitalism just a stepping stone? And is it temporary? Because it, it basically strangles itself. It pisses its people off once it gets to its full fruition which is you have all these people who have stuff you have all these people who feel like the dream's over what do you reckon mark you love to talk yeah <laughs> um yeah well i guess uh marx's kind of thing is uh very much being seen over the past few decades and especially in america there's being a a lot of class division and um everything's just got more expensive and out of reach like Hamilton was saying. And so, yeah, I guess it could be um, Marxism, his plan from going capitalism to socialism and maybe even eventually communism. It's never been done. Maybe America could do it. <laughs> I don't know. What does anyone else think? Well, I think definitely, like we were saying before, capitalism really was a promise. And it's sort of the promise that if you work hard, you like there's something to strive for. You get your house, you get your car, you get all that sort of stuff. 
look after but, your family. Yeah, you get yep. your family, like meal on the table. But I feel like that promise is definitely starting to die out. So like where like the kind of the hypothetical is where is capitalism if there isn't that promise, that incentive, that drive to keep going, like where do we stand? Yeah, and what happens to these sort of big corporations and whatnot and these and like the the stock market and the housing market if there's no longer I don't know, people working to, you know, build the houses or doing all the low end jobs because they're not getting paid enough and they don't really um, they don't have any incentive to work hard anymore for for that um, dream because that dream is seeming to get further and further out of reach for them and they're struggling with debt and whatnot and a lot of like things are very over leveraged in America especially um, in terms of a lot of people have debts a lot of people are taking out like huge mortgages to buy houses and that sort of thing and so they never they're not going to own their house for a very very long time hmm. yeah and there's definitely been a, a lot of shift in where the money lies like the poor is getting poorer and the rich are getting richer is what a lot of people are kind of fighting about and so like you're seeing people get 200 billion dollars like if you think about it they can spend more than two billion dollars a year like what can two billion buy you like you'd be set on at least a million and but there's also these other people that are just scrounging around and i guess to kind of sort that problem capitalism has adopted a lot of socialist policies like welfare and uh free health care and so i guess it's kind of a transition phase or maybe capitalism will crack down and yeah we'll see where we go yeah well i feel like if in america if the lower classes continue to put pressure on this sort of um on the capitalist system, I feel like they might start to move towards a position where where we are in in Australia at the moment with like you know public healthcare, um, welfare like payments if you don't have a job or you're looking for a job. Um, what other stuff do we have? Um, I was just going to say that when we were talking about examples of like the NEP, and we know Lenin did that for survival because there was stress and stress in the system. And like Hitler pulled back on going after the Jews because the people weren't ready for it in the initial stages, so he pulled back on it. Is social welfare just, again, like we look at it and we talk about how good it is, and it is good, don't get me wrong. Is it just another survival mechanism that Australia uses? Is healthcare in Australia, the fact that it's so heavily subsidised, is the doll are these things these social safety nets survival mechanisms in australia that if we you know take away our biases and we were from another country we'd be like well they're just there so that their lower class or their poorest classes don't revolt yeah well definitely our society we enjoy a lot of those things and it but we also have fossil fuel subsidies so that the price of fuel kind of remains around the same price and doesn't get exorbitantly expensive because um, in this day and age it's kind of based off fossil fuels and that's what we run on. And so a lot of these um, subsidies and helping out uh, the poorer people with welfare is 
yeah, trying to stop um, a lot of revolts and trying to keep calm within the community and look like as if they're still a very strong nation. Yeah, I feel like with that whole thing of welfare and that sort of thing being similar to the NEP and stopping people from revolting, I feel like we are sort of starting to move through the stages like Marx predicted. I think it's sort of like when capitalism was first sort of starting out, you could kind of like, it was a good system in that if you worked hard, you could get to the top. And I think there's the problem now is like Mark Mark was saying before is with everyone saying the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Like if you're born into that bottom class, there isn't really a clear way for you to climb to the top. You're just going to be in debt your whole life and you're never going to really be able to make it out of that unless you work extremely, extremely hard or you get very, very lucky. So I think that's why we are sort of moving into more of these socialist ideas and it is a bit of a safety net just to keep that poorer class from, you know, revolting or um, ending up in poverty and that sort of thing. Yeah. Or it's just like, I'll be happy with your afterpay or your step pay, which I saw the Commonwealth Bank brought out the other day, which is that if you peel back the surface or like one layer, which is like, oh, I can have all this stuff now. Again, it feels like it's another perhaps maybe survival mechanism that is being put out there for people rather than realizing that it's like, oh my God, the dream's actually not there. It's like, oh no, the dream's still there. I just have to use this app to get it. Like I can have my shoes or I can have my car loan or I can just live paycheck to paycheck and I can have that gold necklace and look like I'm still living the life. I don't even know if gold ne- necklaces are cool. <laughs> they probably are for some people. But it is kind of a weird time like we're in sort of this type of conflict and like if you look into the future of how things are now, it's kind of hard to imagine what the future does hold for us. So it's kind of a strange time to be. I don't know, doing your HSC. Hard to focus on what's writing your HSC when you when you got all these things in the background. Um, yeah, so I'd agree with Sir in terms of the fact that these sort of social um, I don't know, policies are sort of the NAP of capitalism in terms of that they're sort of um yeah, keeping the dream alive, keeping people, I don't know, um, from being distanced from the from the capitalist system. In terms of the fact that you know you got all these, you know, free free schooling, um, public schools. You know, they're sort of allowing you to see the ability to move up through the through the system in a way. In terms of the fact that if you are poor, you can still go to school and you can still get a little bit of education, which then you can then use to move up throughout the system i guess yeah and there's definitely some cracks that are probably starting to appear as well yeah which is like you said you could do all those sorts of things but then you have like a hex debt yeah and then that can go along with your mortgage and that can go along with your after payment payments and it's just this and it's kind of almost in the culture now where it's just like oh don't worry about it like just just get it now and don't worry about tomorrow and when does that party end and when that party ends what's the next step then for the for the australia's and the uk and the america and covid's probably just accelerated all this stuff because everyone's doubling down on the debt 
yeah, it's interesting to think about because now you've got like parents dying and leaving debt to their kids. So not only do you have to worry about your own debt to try and I need to think about that. Yeah. Now you gotta worry about your parents' debt and then that stacks onto yours and then when you die that's really gonna stack onto the kids. It's kind of strange to think about but like one day you're just gonna be so in debt that there's just never any hope to pay off anything. Yeah. Yeah. You're a peasant again. <laughs> yeah, we've also seen in America they're trying to lift the debt ceiling because they need to keep paying for all these things that they've bought like yesterday and all these previous years and they've got to keep trying to pay for all these policies and you know, they keep lifting that and that's just gone exponential and it makes you wonder uh, what's the end point and what's going to happen when you can't pay back all the debt. Yeah, they've done it like 80 something times now and that's the justification. They decide like, we'll take on new debt to pay off the old debt and if you weren't the president of the United States saying that and say you were my auntie, I'd say that you're crazy. Like you should not have five credit cards <laughs> just to pay off the other credit cards. And I actually saw that once I was in bloody NAB and I was just like trying to get, I was trying to get rid of a credit card. Like I was just trying to get it cancelled and they wouldn't let me cancel it. And I was probably just going on a diatribe now, but the lady who was in front of me was she was there trying to pay off her credit card bills and she was she asked like can i get another credit card like open up another credit account so i can pay that off and make that payment like, yep you can do that it's just seems a bit insane it's kind of like um when you're in the ocean you swallow some water and oh that's salty you get some water to get rid of it and you keep drinking the water and eventually you die i guess well, it's even a strange concept to think about, like, this exponential debt and stuff. Because, like, countries, like, if you think about how in debt some countries are and stuff, like, it's all just become imaginary numbers, sort of thing. Like, you go, like, you used to be able to go and say you wanted to buy your house, you'd have your savings, you'd buy your house. But now it's kind of like, if you've got this debt, it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you've got to keep paying it off, but you're never really going to be able to pay it off. Like, it's sort of just imaginary. Like, yeah. You, you can buy things with just thin air without working. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll take, oh, you're going to give me all this imaginary cash so I can buy this materialistic thing. So. Yeah, it gets kind of crazy to think about. I just brought up a picture of the US debt clock, which anyone can Google, and it, it gets calculated in real time. So you can see that the US national debt, which again, they're talking about raising the ceiling again, is $28 trillion dollars which is not a number I can even like, uh, start to explain or fathom, or fathom. And you can see it then broken up per citizen. So the debt per citizen is $86,000. Like that's how much each US citizen, if you broke it down for a fair share, owes to other countries. Mm. And that's pretty much nearly, um, I guess, a yearly wage as well. A yearly wage for someone who's doing well off in America. Or, yeah. Okay. So we know that in Soviet Russia, we know that when we're talking about China, they're able to extend their attempts and try to do things differently by censorship and by cult of personality and controlling the narrative and removing opposition. 
why do people keep lending money to the US <laughs> when you look at them and you, it's like if that junkie or someone asks you for money. It's like, it's like, oh, let's have a look at your credit rating. Like, it's amazing that we get knocked back for any sort of credit scores. Like, oh, so you owe $28 trillion. So for some reason, they're good for it. <laughs> so why, why do they just keep lending more money? What? How... How's the U.S. doing this? How are they getting away with it? It's probably just the facade that I keep coming. Everything's all it's all well and good over here. Just let's just on the outside, keep yeah. printing money. It's great and jealous of Seems good to everyone else, but yeah. It makes you wonder too, like if the U.S., the the big leader in the world, how they have to take money from everyone else and then everyone else has to take money. Like, where's all this money coming from? They're just making up, making it all up out of thin air to, like you said earlier, pay for older debts and by taking new debts and it's just feedback loop pretty much. Yeah, well, at some point there's going to have to be like some sort of event happen because the, like, the debt's gone way high. That's never going to be able to be paid off. Because it's just, as we looked on the clock there, it's still climbing. Like, it's not getting smaller, it's getting bigger. Yeah. So, like, there's going to have to be some sort of, I don't know, reckoning that yeah. sort of either that's going to have to go away and we're going to have to start from scratch or something. Or, I don't know. But cool. it's like, like we said before, they're imaginary numbers. It's just going up, isn't it? It's never going to come back down the way we're going. So, I don't know what economic expert but it doesn't look good Good. to be honest i don't think the economists have any idea of what to do i think the obvious answer is well an obvious outcome is staring everybody in the face and it scares the crap out of them which is that if you if there was a strong person involved and if it was like say it was any one of us and we knew what the right thing to do was which was spending had to be cut down and you had to start paying off. It's like if you had to start paying off your home loan or whatever. If you did that, you take away any facade that there is any dream whatsoever. You just you just take the dog out the back and you completely shoot it behind the woodshed. It's over. Then how long does the United States or America or the UK, its citizens, continue to think that this is the way it's going to go. We're just going to stick it out. And that's probably the reason why you can look at a $28 trillion debt clock that climbs up every second and just go, that's probably better than a revolution. And <laughs> just looking at a number going up, that seems like a pretty good trade-off. Or, yeah, just something to that nature. And you're going to get crazier and crazier ideas like, Every year they talk about raising the debt ceiling. They bring up the idea of printing the trillion dollar coin. That, look, the treasury can print its own money. So let's just make two one trillion dollar coins. Use one to pay off the debt and then one to pay for all our spending. And if we ever need more money, let's do that again. And people laugh at it. It's just like, that's the dumbest idea we've ever heard. Like, we're not entertaining that idea. But the interesting bit is that it keeps coming back and every time it keeps coming back and that number keeps going up and everyone thinks it's just funny money, then at one point you get somebody in there who's just like, oh, yeah, let's just make a coin mm. or something like that. And even if they do continue to be like playing hot potato, 
pass it on to the next person until eventually it falls and you're left with a mess. But also, even if you did have a strong leader, they'd need to divert money to pay for that debt. And so everyone's kind of grown accustomed to having a nice, comfortable lifestyle. And if someone takes that away from you to try and solve this big problem, then you're going to have unhappy people there and you get kicked out and then the next person's going to be like, I'm not like them. We'll keep borrowing more and more debt and just be happy with me, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like any the world has been in this situation a couple of times before and World War One, World War Two comes in and to some extent cleanses a lot of that because the people who owed money, they're gone now. <laughs> and I don't mean like the individuals, I mean like the empires are gone now. So it's like, oh well, they're definitely not good for it anymore. I'm just gonna have to write that down as a bad as a bad loan. That when you have all this debt, maybe the kid just keeps getting kicked down the road forever at this point for the sake of social stability and the sake and the sake of keeping the dream alive. Like, I'm pretty shocked that COVID didn't pop the whole thing, to be honest. There was some real tricks pulled out of the bag to keep it going. And I think the trick was printing $2 trillion of extra money in the United States and the European Central Bank and the Australian RA Reserve Bank here that we just hit the morphine button and just kept going. <laughs> There's nothing wrong here. Yeah, it's all right. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Anyway, yep. Yeah, like you said, with like World War One and the cleansing, I think something has to happen to like reset everything. Like we can't just keep going. It's something's got to happen, and that's going to be kind of interesting for us to look at. It's a bit weird when you're sort of a teenager just like thinking about it, but it's like kind of looking towards the future. Like it's kind of curious to me what will happen. What what conclusion are they going to come to to fix this problem or are they just going to keep letting it run out until i don't know like something has to happen will, will they abolish all money and start a new currency or mm. because that's what germany had to do when their currency was worth nothing and they put a whole new one which comes to the fact who will be the new top country if not america yeah it's a bit of a that their currency was their escape valve. And they're just like, oh, well, we're not going to do austerity, which is the trimming the fat and basically paying down the debts. But we're not going to not not pay the debts because we have to because we got all the guns of Europe trained on us. So what's the default? And if you're sovereign, you can print your own currency, but there still has to be someone who pays for that. And it's the people who save their wealth in the dollars unfortunately and from everything that i can see that's what's happening again which is that the countries aren't going to default on the debt um they're not going to do austerity because like mark said even if the best-hearted person the strongest person came in and did it they wouldn't be allowed to do it they get removed they get voted out because the pain would be way too much at this point it's like you should have ripped the band-aid off like decades ago and it's not any politician's fault today or grandfather or great-grandfather it's like it's a morphine run that goes back pretty much all the way back to world war ii 
So it's way too hard now. And the release valve is the people who own cash and who don't own a house or who don't own assets or anything like that. And it's a mad scramble to get anything that's worth anything because the money's definitely not worth anything. Yeah, and I feel like Scott was saying that, you know, you might have to, like, that the American dollar might become worthless and whatever. And I feel like that's sort of moving towards what Marx, what Karl Marx sort of, I don't know, believed would happen in terms of if they lose their currency, that's a communist thing. If they have no, no longer have a currency and they're working on, you know, physical things like, I'll trade you this little piece of land for that that loaf of bread there. Yeah, <laughs> could be. And when the money's no longer worth anything because it's been, you know, printed too much or there's, there's so much debt and people start to move towards this sort of communist ideas, we'll just trade you this for this. Yeah, come up with some other ideas. Anyway, the bell, the bell has gone. Thank you, listener. Hopefully we haven't given you any nightmares, but these are some really adult things to think about and it shows you some pretty practical reasons of why actually thinking about this stuff is good. Not like good as in happy thoughts and happy feelings, but like it gives you an advantage because if you see an opportunity to get out of the way, do it. Right out. Thank you. I'll quickly get everyone to say goodbye before they go home. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hopefully I can go to sleep tonight. <laughs> yeah, thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoyed our young-minded thoughts on these very adult topics. So. Yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Hope you have some food for thought. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope we didn't scare you so much. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs>